it's nearly impossible to pinpoint exactly when the first trademark came to be. But let's just say the idea of trademarks goes back a long time. Think cave paintings, ancient pottery, stone sculptures, all branded with symbols, words, or images that connect them back to the person who made them. Because trademarks have been around since the dawn of modern civilization, the laws that govern and shape what can and cannot be trademarked have gone through quite a few changes. And today, you might be surprised by all the things you can trademark. Names, symbols, sayings. But in the past decade, there's been a change to a long-standing piece of trademark law. Whether or not you can trademark things like derogatory phrases, racial slurs, and words that you just generally wouldn't say around your mother. Yeah, there are 400,000 words in the English language, and there are seven of them you can't say on television. What a ratio that is. 399,993 Cover your ears, because from the Intellectual Property Owners Education Foundation, this is Stroke of Genius. I like to stir things up in uh, trying to get people to shift away from the status quo. you got to shake things up a bit, particularly because the status quo, or what is considered normal isn't always that great for everybody. And as a member of a community that's oftentimes marginalized by the system, I understand that. And I know that changing the system or the status quo oftentimes is making trouble, at least in the eyes of those who benefit from those systems. This is Simon Tan. I'm the founder and bassist of The Slants and a nonprofit organization called The Slants Foundation. But a lot of times I just say I'm a bit of a troublemaker. A bit might be an understatement because not all trouble gets you to the Supreme Court, which is where Simon ultimately ended up. So it's very important for me to try and shift conversations and culture around how we engage. And the best way Simon knows how to shift conversations is through music. Oh man, I just grew up loving music. <laughs> like, my parents have these home videos of me. I think I'm like three, two or three years old, and I would just grab my dad's acoustic guitar, jump up on the coffee table, and pretend to play a show, even though I had no idea like how to play guitar or barely to be able to speak. But there was just something about it that I really loved. Just making the noise, just kind of getting the energy and attention of the room, and that love didn't stop in childhood. You no, know, I spent a good chunk of my life playing in bands, mostly like punk bands and that sort of thing. In fact, ever since I picked up the bass at 10 years old, I just started like, you know, making up bands whenever I could or joining existing ones. But what about the band that would take him all the way to the Supreme Court, to the heart of First Amendment law? 
Well, the idea for the band started in 2004. I was actually already in a punk band called The Stivs. And during that time period, I came across the movie Kill Bill from Quentin Tarantino. And as I was watching the sequence, I just realized that it was probably the first time in my life that I had ever seen an American-produced film that showed Asians as cool, confident, and sexy. Is that what I think it is? You didn't think it was going to be that easy, did you? You know, for a second there? Yeah, I kind of did. It's like this very iconic scene where Oranishi is walking into this restaurant with her gang of crazy 88s, the, like, you know, the Yakuza gang that she led. And as I started thinking back on my life, I realized, wow, I don't see any depiction of this, of people who look like me in the music industry at all. This is pre-YouTube, pre-MySpace, really. Like, there was just no representation of Asian Americans in the music scene, even though there were almost 18 million of us. And that's when I decided something needed to change. And so I got this huge passion for like starting this idea. I'm like, okay, I'm going to start an Asian American band. But of course, every band, if it's going to be successful, needs an instantly iconic name. I had a couple names in the running. It, to back up a little bit, like because the, the music project was inspired by a movie, I originally had like a very cinematic idea for the group. And I thought, oh, it'd be really fun to incorporate like triad or Yakuza kind of themes into the band. And so I was using like Cantonese or different Japanese words for what they call the triads, like Samkowei, which is kind of like, a, you know, the, the brotherhood or that sort of thing. But I just thought like it just didn't really work. So I started asking my friends around me, you know, non-Asian friends, I was just say, hey, what's something you think all Asian people have in common? And that's when they started saying uh, slanted eyes. And so my immediate reaction was like, oh, the slants. This sounds like a new wave band that Debbie Harry would front. But more importantly, like I thought back of my own childhood and how I was relentlessly bullied. I was violently attacked in the streets uh, several times because I had these eyes. And I always associated my eyes with shame. And I also knew that, you know, Asians are the most bullied demographic in American schools. So I wasn't alone in this feeling. And I thought, what if we could change it? What if we could change the relationship that we have with this idea of slanted eyes from shame to something of empowerment and something that people could flip the stereotype because, you know, not all Asians actually have slanted eyes. And we're also not the only people on the planet with slanted eyes. Like, what if we could just change the relationship with this idea? And that's when, you know, the, the band name essentially was born. That band name was, of course, The Slants. And the thing is, at first, it wasn't controversial at all. It was the opposite. That, that was the kind of funny thing about it. We had been playing for about two years before we started the process and applying for the, the trademark. The response was overwhelming. Like we were covered in pretty much every single Asian American newspaper in the country, every magazine, TV show, internet blog, like Angry Asian Man, Coriam. There's all these different publications out there. And everyone was really enthusiastic about it. They just got it right away. They were like, oh, this is really badass. And more than that, it was authentic. It felt very true to life. This is really much in line with 
how our community uses the term. The idea of me calling it the slants wasn't like this new or earth shattering thing because we were all using this word or phrase in like these clever kind of ways, sometimes for self-empowerment, sometimes for satire or parody, but it was something that certainly Asian Americans were not like shy in terms of using. So we never really had a problem with it. But then Simon went to register a trademark for the slants. And well... Hey, Simon, we got a problem with your application. Unbeknownst and unfortunately for Simon Tam, when he went to register this trademark, he ran afoul of an influential piece of legislation from 1946 called the Lanham Act. It's basically the Bible of trademark law in the United States. Specifically, Simon was in conflict with Section 2A of the Lanham Act which prohibited trademarks on, quote, immoral, scandalous, or disparaging material, unquote. As the, the Lanham Act, as the big trademark statute, big federal trademark statute, it doesn't say, well, this can be a trademark and this can be a trademark. It, it says if something is, provo- is doing this function, then it almost doesn't matter what the thing is, whether the thing uh, happens to be a word, whether the thing happens to be you know, something visual, whether it happens to be a sound. That's um, Ed Timberlake. Uh, and I'm the sole trademark and copyright lawyer at Timberlake Law. So I've got a solo practice now. But I started off as a trademark examining attorney at the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. And then I was a copyright examiner at the U.S. Copyright Office. And since then, I've been in private practice. He's an expert on trademark law which, as it turns out, is a trickier body of law than it might first appear. Because the first thing is that in order to function as a trademark, you have to meet all the other criteria. You have to be noticeable. You know, people have to be able to perceive it. And you have to be different enough from the other people in the space. And in the realm of the perceived, a band name that's most commonly used as a racial slur against people of Asian descent is pretty noticeable. You know, the fundamental, the first thing is that you have to be able to perceive it. And then ideally, the next part is that you really notice it, that it stands out in some way. So sort of think about if if you walk into some place and everybody's wearing jeans and a T-shirt and you walk in, you know, in a pirate outfit, that's the kind of it's like, OK, well, that really stands out. So to the extent that trademarks are wearing a pirate outfit to some place where everybody else is wearing T-shirts, That's kind of the function that we're talking about. And it doesn't matter whether the outfit, whether it's clothes, it doesn't matter if it's a sound, it doesn't really matter what the other elements are. As long as it's doing that thing of you, you can perceive it and you notice that that's different than the other things around it. Because that's the thing about trademarks. They can be, well, almost anything. And if you have a distinct symbol that differentiates yourself or your product sufficiently from all other offerings in the marketplace you already have a trademark. You have a trademark when you establish the word or phrase, but to protect your brand identity and to increase your protections under the law, you have to register it with the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. And that's a completely different matter. The trademark side of the office does not give out trademarks. It, it, in fact, you have to have a trademark before the trademark side can really do anything for you. So long before his case reached the Supreme Court, Simon already had a trademark, albeit a disparaging trademark. So once TAM happens, then the the world sort of shifts. And at first, I thought it was my fault. I thought I filled out something incorrectly. 
But that wasn't it. So Simon did what anyone would do in this situation. He talked to his lawyer. He says, they say that the name of your band is disparaging to persons of Asian descent. And of course, I'm like, wait, does disparaging mean what I think it means? Are they saying we're racist to Asian people? And he says, yes. And of course, I'm like, I didn't even know there's something like that would prevent this. There's all kinds of offensive stuff out there. And he says, you know, proceeds to read me Section 2A of the Lanham Act. Ah, yes. Section 2A of the Lanham Act. That says you can't register marks that are considered scandalous, immoral, or disparaging. The last, the trademark office, you know, basically looked at the words and uh, saw that it was a derogatory term. That's Francesca Procaccini. She's a First Amendment scholar at Harvard Law School. And under this provision, this disparagement provision, uh, denied the trademark. But Simon knew something wasn't adding up. So he kept asking his lawyer questions. And I thought it was a practical joke. He just says, I think they just don't understand. I think they just don't understand the context of what your band's doing. Let's go ahead and appeal. I think we can just convince them by showing the wide community support that you have. And if we can do that, then there shouldn't be any issues moving forward. Of course, that turned out to be entirely wrong, and it turned into a much bigger fiasco from there. So this is how the dispute got so big that it made it here. We'll hear argument first this morning in case 15-1293, Lee versus Tam. Mr. Stewart? The Supreme Court of the United States. I was at the edge of my seat this whole time. But at the same time, it felt like really weird because if you think, think about the situation, it's like a bunch of non-Asian people arguing about what's offensive to Asian people. And the only Asian people in the room are not allowed to speak. Like I'm also there fighting for freedom of expression in the nation's highest court. And in that room, I'm not allowed to express anything. I just have to sit there. And this is, of course, the case as the arguments unfold and the government's presenting their case. Basically, my band, how we're doing, you know, our work is disparaging to, to our community. And it just feels wrong. And it wasn't until about halfway through the arguments that I hear this little voice pop up and it's Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And she says, doesn't it matter that everyone knows the slants are Asian? They're not using the word to disparage, but to describe. And they're removing the sting from the term. Does it not count at all that everyone knows that the slants is using this term not at all to disparage? but simply to describe. I, I think to it take is... the sting out of the word. And of course, like, I was like, yo, notorious RBG just threw it down. Like, I'm in love with the Supreme Court justice. You know, it was just so, so fascinating. Simon's love wasn't misplaced because the Supreme Court, they ruled in his favor. You know, I was on the West Coast at the time. So it was like six in the morning and my phone's just blowing up. And I'm like, what is happening? I had like something like 700 notifications. So I was like, what? what's going on? Like I hop on Twitter and it's actually, I check, I see on OPB, Oregon Public Broadcasting, which is the first like public radio station that like covered our story. They were the ones that said, there's this Asian American band that's taking stereotypes and turning them upside down. And they just write in a single tweet, the Supreme Court rules in favor of the slants. And I was like, 
but what did they rule? Like, what did they say? And like, I get in my email, my attorney, uh, Ron, only writes one word, congratulations. The slants had won their hard-fought trademark registration, and a piece of the Lanham Act had fallen. The legislation that said the government couldn't register trademarks for scandalous, immoral, or disparaging material, the disparagement clause had been ruled unconstitutional. It was a win for First Amendment hawks, but it also left an opening in the constitutional underpinnings of trademark law. Here's Francesca Procaccini again. This was unconstitutional because when the government steps in and says, nope, we don't like your trademark based on the, the fact that it disparages other people, that that is what's called viewpoint discrimination. And so we don't allow that under the First Amendment, but didn't want to go as far in trying to figure out, you know, how do we really do trademark law under the First Amendment? So there was no, no real understanding after Matal for how... That's Matal versus Tam, the formal name for the case. How to reconcile the government's power to grant trademarks with the government's obligations under the First Amendment not to discriminate against any speech on the basis of its content or its viewpoint. And you can understand, you know, how how much tension there is there. I mean, trademarks are speech. They they are they're markings or written words or, you know, they they are some form of speech. That is what they are by definition. And so for the government to come in and grant or deny a trademark application means that they have to be, by definition, engaging in some sort of judgment as to whether or not that speech should be eligible for a government benefit, meaning the the trademark. And at the same time, you have the First Amendment that says, you know, the government cannot abridge speech. So it was only a matter of time before a case came along that blew the rest of Section 2A of the Lanham Act apart. Back in 2019, the U.S. Supreme Court heard oral arguments for a case in which no one dared utter the word at the heart of the dispute. Could you please tell me how you're defining scandalous, Mark? From your brief, I thought you were giving it a different definition than has been used by the agency for a while. Well, the, the term, the adjectives that have sometimes been used as synonyms for scandalous by the agency are terms like shocking, disgraceful, offensive and disreputable. I think well, if you use the nine justices had convened to consider the parameters of scandalous language because of this guy. Honestly, I consider myself an artist first and foremost. Artist and fashion designer Eric Brunetti. Groundwork for a lot of brands that, that, that have come currently, but I, I don't have any special feelings about it. To be honest with you, I think a lot of it. Brunetti had launched an in-your-face line of streetwear and was hoping to register its name and trademark for a word we can't exactly say out loud in this podcast. I mean, uh, most people know what words we're talking about. And, of course, you could come in and show they're all wrong on this, but they probably aren't. All right. Because the Supreme Court refused to say it, I'll lay it out for you. Eric Brunetti wanted to register the trademark of his clothing line, F-U-C-T. It's an acronym for Friends You Can't Trust. A majority of the court said no. We're not going to do that. We're not going to draw that line. Here, under the First Amendment, if the government tries to restrict speech because it finds the speech hateful or vulgar or scandalous, it doesn't matter how it's hateful, vulgar, or scandalous. 
all that matters is that the government really has to stay out of making that judgment. So the court robustly embraced a very strong free speech tradition in both of these cases. Some of the justices were a little bit more comfortable with giving a little, but at the end of the day, you have two clear decisions back to back that reaffirm this idea that vulgar speech, hate speech, any kind of other type of speech that we find demeaning or immoral or disparaging is basically 100% protected. And that is a very unique tradition in the United States. It might sound odd that trademark was the area of law where free speech rights were once again expanded and defended. But then again, maybe it's not so strange. I think it's both it's both surprising and not surprising. It's surprising in that trademark is very old. It's a, it's a pretty uncontroversial government program, if you will. It's not the big First Amendment topic. So it's surprising in that way, but it's also, when you really think about it, it's not surprising at all. And the reason being, the court has steadfastly closed all the other avenues for addressing whether vulgar speech it, you know, can be prohibited. And because those had already been decided, it's then not surprising that the next big opportunity the court would have to reassert its strong commitment to free speech doctrine that does not allow the prohibition of vulgarity would be in a more kind of technical or nuanced uh, place like trademark. Trademarks have always been about preserving expression. It's why we have them in the first place. And now, thanks to a few pioneering artists and activists, that expression is constitutionally protected. If you liked this episode, please leave us a rating or review and share it with your friends. Thanks for listening. <laughs>